for coming and joining us on this session on how our desires point to God. C.S. Lewis's theistic argument from desire. Uh, I won't uh, introduce myself. You can find out more about me at my website at peterswilliams.com. Um, I'm a Christian philosopher uh, with a particular interest in C.S. Lewis and uh, C.S. Lewis's argument from desire is something that I've written on uh, off and on over many years. We start with a, a little uh, introduction. The atheist philosopher from France, André Comte Sponville, says this. He says, I would prefer that God did exist. And this is one of my reasons for not believing it. Uh, an existence which corresponds at this point to our strongest desires, he says, how can we not suspect that it has been invented to satisfy them? It's what Freud calls an illusion, a belief derived from human desires. Well, C.S. Lewis was well acquainted with Sigmund Freud's critique of religion, but he rejected uh, Freud's illogical assertion that God must be an illusion because we desire him. Indeed, Lewis did more than any other 20th century scholar to develop the, the inversion, the, the turning around of Freud's critique uh, in his uh, argument from desire, uh, which we may occasionally shorten to uh, AFD, argument from desire. C.S. Lewis famously described his quest to understand what he called an unsatisfied desire which in itself is more desirable than any satisfaction that he knew of in his uh, autobiography surprised by joy uh, he's describing a, a mystical experience that he first of all called romantic uh, and later he called joy uh, and which writers in the German Romantic tradition of literature called uh, Seinsucht. I've probably mangled the German there. I apologise to any Germans who are joining us in the stream here. Joy appears to be uh, an innate, natural human desire. It's spontaneously occasioned, but not satisfied by various worldly triggers let's call them these triggers are somewhat person dependent but generally have to do with an appreciation of beauty uh, and uh, the sublime um, when we look into the nature of trying to define you know an, an innate desire uh, this can get a little complex a little lengthy, but um, this is what I've come up with thus far, that in innate desires, sort of built-in desires, are persistently reoccurring, behaviour-shaping desires for um, anticipated coherent ends that properly functioning members of a natural kind, such as human beings, um, are 
either born with or with a natural tendency to just spontaneously develop these desires. And so they're consequently widespread, um, you know, regardless of things like historical era, uh, age, gender, class, education. And they get enshrined in linguistically recognised states of satisfaction and deprivation in human languages, and they manifest in, in cross-cultural artistic themes. So, uh, Corbin Scott Cornell, in his study, Bright Shadow of Reality, Spiritual Longing in C.S. Lewis, wrote that uh, Zeinzucht might be said to represent just as much a, a basic theme of literature as love is a basic uh, theme of literature. Consider this short passage from a book that Lewis himself loved, uh, The Wind in the Willows by Graham Greene. said, a bird piped up suddenly and was still, and a light breeze sprang up and set the reeds and bulrushes rustling. Rat, who was in the stern of the boat while Mole sculled, sat up suddenly and listened with a, a passionate interest, intentness. Mole, who with gentle strokes was just keeping the boat moving while he scanned the banks with care, looked at him with curiosity. Oh, it's gone, sighed the rat, sinking back into his seat again. So beautiful and, and strange and, and new, since it was to end so soon. I almost wish I'd never heard it, for it's roused a longing in me that is pain. Nothing seems worthwhile but just to hear that sound once more and go on listening to it forever. You'd have to read the book to, uh, to find out what the sound uh, was. Lewis says, Joy isn't a desire for the worldly objects that occasion it or trigger it, in as much as those objects that seem to trigger this desire experience in us don't satisfy the longing that they occasion. He says, thus we remain conscious of a desire which no natural happiness will satisfy. But actually the argument from desire can appeal to a, a range of what we might call existentially relevant innate desires. Lewis, for example, counted what he called the irrepressible thirst for immortality as being among the contents of natural desire. Uh, and we find uh, witness to this in a, a range of thinkers from different worldview perspectives. So Christopher Hitchens, atheist, uh, commenting on his favourite song, uh, Stevie Winwood's Higher Love, said, I admit it has evangelical overtones, but I do long for a higher love. Or well, the agnostic philosopher Antonio Hare speaks of the perfection we long for in some other world. Roger Scruton wrote of, of the way that beauty points us beyond this world to a kingdom of ends in which our immortal longings are finally answered. Atheist Bruce Scheiman says, I want to believe that our timeless quest for goodness and transcendence has its omega point in God. Even though I cannot believe in God, I still feel the need for God. Sociologist Charles Taylor uh, notes our aspiration to separate ourselves from evil and chaos. Uh, 
that's uh, in uh, his book A Secular Age he's a Canadian philosopher as well Taylor describes this powerful intuition that in some activity or condition there lies a fullness, a richness, he says, a, a state wherein life is more worthwhile, more admirable, more what it should be. Perhaps this sense of fullness is something we just catch glimpses of from afar off. Something there will be moments of experienced fullness, of, of joy and fulfilment, when we feel ourselves there and he says such mystical experiences can help define a direction to our lives but the sense of orientation also has its negative slope where we we experience above all a, a distance an absence an exile the nostalgia for something transcendent and Taylor returns to this spiritual longing towards the end of his magisterial book A Secular Age, uh, noting the need for meaning, a desire for eternity, and concluding that while culturally speaking, he says there are strong incentives to remain within the bounds of the human domain. He says, yet the sense that there is something more presses in uh, upon us. Well, Lewis made very effective use of this sort of experiential point of connection in various presentations of the argument from desire, most of which in his writings take that joy experience as their starting point. And I want in this talk to look through a number of different ways of articulating this argument uh, inspired by Lewis and then uh, towards the end we'll come back into uh, sort of group view so we can all see each other um, and I'll answer questions you can be typing questions uh, into the into the chat function and our moderator in the background will be collating those questions for me um, so you can do that uh, but also uh, you're free to to join in a, in discussion if you want to uh, towards the end as we come back into video uh, conferencing Lewis wasn't the first to explore the argument from desire. Aquinas does it in uh, Summa Contra Gentiles, Pascal in his Pensees, Thomas Chalmers in On Natural Theology Book 2, or G.K. Chesterton in The Everlasting Man, indeed, uh, which uh, is a book we know that Lewis uh, may have been influenced by. Uh, Lewis wasn't the only scholar of his day. Uh, to use it. Um, contemporaries like Jacques Maritain in Approaches to God or C.E.M. Jode also discussed it. But it's true to say that it's due to Lewis's influence, his articulation of this theme, that an increasing number of contemporary scholars have become interested in arguments from desire. Um, philosophers like uh, Todd Burris and Michael Contrell, John Haldane, Robert Hoyler, Peter Kreeft, Robert Sloan Lee, Alistair McGrath, Clifford Williams and so on. I've put a selection of books here on screen um, that contain sections uh, dealing with this argument. Indeed, the uh, C.S. Lewis's Christian Apologetics Pro and Con book is a book in which I have a debate on this argument with the editor Gregory Basham. Alistair McGrath, the British theologian, says that this argument is not really an argument for the existence of God in the strictest sense of the term. Uh, we'd need to expand Lewis's point to include 
uh, the declaration that God either is or is an essential condition for the, the satisfaction of the natural human desire for transcendent fulfillment. Um, but actually, I think I'd say that some formulations of the, the AFD invoke God more directly than others. Let's put it like that. Well, as I say, Lewis presents this argument in a wide variety of sort of argumentative modes, and there are various cogent arguments from desire that we can sort of put in different ways and that jointly constitute a, a cumulative argument from desire. Let's start off with a on the face of it, prima facie argument from desire. Uh, Samuel Alexander's Clifford Lectures on Space, Time and Deity introduced Lewis to the distinction between enjoyment and contemplation, uh, a distinction Lewis himself would later parse as the, the difference between looking at and looking along a beam of light. Um, this experience of enjoying joy is an, an inherently teleological end-pointing sort of experience points beyond itself to a transcendent and innately desirable something more. Contemplating joy leads further away from naturalism, pantheistic worldview and towards theism. As Douglas Grutus concludes that the argument from yearning renders credible some transcendent source of human satisfaction beyond the material world. It, it points to a theistic worldview since it's based on the claim that humans desire a transcendent reality that can satisfy the human person and nothing less than something personal would seem to be able to do that um, to take the the phenomenology the lived experience of this desire for something transcendent more out there at face value on the face of it is to to look along that experience towards the transcendent other. As soon as you've grasped the simple distinction, says Lewis, between looking at and looking along, it, it raises the question. You, you get one experience of a thing when you look at along it, another when you look at it, which is the true or valid experience. He observes it's come to be taken for granted that the external account of a thing somehow refutes or debunks the account from the inside. Um, all these moral ideas which look so transcendental and beautiful from inside, says the wisecracker, are really one mass of biological instinct and inherited taboos. Uh, no one plays the game of the other way round by replying, if you only step inside, the things that look to you like instincts and taboos will suddenly reveal their real and transcendental nature. Well, actually, uh, Lewis was ahead of, the, ahead of the curve here, contemporary philosophy of knowledge, epistemology, is open to playing the game the other way round. Uh, various epistemologies of trust, like reform epistemology, illustrate this point. Well, Richard Swinburne, who talks about the, the principle of rationality called the principle of credulity, or the principle of when to trust, that we ought to believe that things are as they seem to be, unless and until we have evidence that we're mistaken. Um, Trying to say the contrary would lead you to hardly believing anything. Uh, if you can't trust appearances as such, you can't trust any new experiences you might appeal to to justify believing anything on the basis of any argument at all. Swinburne explains that this uh, principle of credulity 
just describes how we're inclined to believe that things are and it has a wide application beyond those gathered by your ordinary you know physical senses like your sense of sight he says uh, for example it applies to relying on your own memory you know, what you seem to recall uh, memory isn't a, a sensory or perceptual faculty um, so this is a very general epistemic principle which we could uh, apply, I think, to the experience of the desire for something transcendent, which seems to us to point beyond the world. Ivano Alvin Plantinger argues for the properly basic status of belief in God evoked by desire. He says, perhaps this restlessness without God leads to belief in God. Perhaps God's designed us in this way to impel us to try to get us in touch with him. Uh, the process leading to the formation of the beliefs in question are directed at the truth. The relevant module of the design plan, how we think, has, has its purpose the production of true belief, even if it goes by way of perception of beauty or wish fulfilment, indeed. In uh, the book Two Dozen or So Arguments for God, Todd Burris and Michael Cantrell, who I mentioned earlier, argue that God is a precondition of humans obtaining complete happiness and that complete happiness is a, a seemingly non-defective desire. That a seemingly non-defective desire is on the face of it an indication of the possibility of the object of that desire being real um, from which it would follow that God's existence is on the face of it possible at least which when you tie that in with the key uh, as a support for the key premise of the the modal ontological argument that Alvin Plantinga puts would be one support for that argument interestingly Aristotelian I going back to Aristotle arguments from desire Lewis said this in Pilgrim's Regress in the preface uh, if a man diligently followed this desire pursuing the false objects until their falsity appeared and then resolutely abandoning them he must come at last to the clear knowledge that the human soul was made to enjoy some object that's never fully given in our present mode of subjective and spatio-temporal experience uh, this desire with a capital D was in the soul as the siege perilous in Arthur's castle, the chair in which only one could sit. And if nature makes nothing in vain, the one who can sit in this chair must exist. Now that, that nature makes nothing in vain um, is a quotation back to Aristotle. Aristotle's principle that nature makes nothing in vain. Um, so you could formalise the argument here like this. Uh, one, nature makes no type of thing in vain. Two, humans have a natural type of desire, joy, that would be in vain unless some object that's never fully given in our present mode of existence is obtainable by human in some future mode of existence, from which it would follow deductively that therefore the object of joy must be obtainable in some future mode of human existence. Well, of course, Aristotle's principle is quite controversial these days, but one could give a deductive argument based on a, a restricted application 
of that kind of Aristotelian principle. Uh, you could argue one nature makes no type of innate human desire in vain and mount the same kind of argument that humans have an innate types of desire that would be in vain if God didn't exist. For example, desires for objective value and purpose, desires for forgiveness, cosmic justice and so on. Again, from which it would follow that God exists. Or indeed treating that kind of Aristotelian principle simply as a, what's called a heuristic principle, a, a principle of reasoning, a kind of rule of thumb for thinking about the world. If we argued that one, humans have innate desires that would be in vain if God doesn't exist, and two, that we should assume that no type of natural thing exists in vain until and unless we're shown otherwise. A bit like Swinburne's principle, phrasing the principle of credulity. It would follow that therefore, until and unless we're shown that the relevant innate desires exist in vain, we should assume that God exists. So this would shift uh, a burden of proof uh, onto the atheist here. Another way of phrasing this kind of desire would be what's called an abductive argument, a sort of argument to the best explanation. Uh, Victor Reppert, uh, author of a very good book on C.S. Lewis's Dangerous Idea, which is uh, about Lewis's argument from reason, um, but in his uh, online blog, Victor Reppert talks about Lewis's argument from desire and he phrases it in terms of um, Bayesian probability theory. Uh, and leaving out the complicated stuff, here's how the argument would go. Um, he says, on Christian theism, God's intention of creating humans is to fit them for eternity in God's presence. Uh, as such, it, it stands to reason that we should find ourselves dissatisfied with worldly satisfactions, because we're made for more than that, basically. So, Rappert says, let's put the, the likelihood that we should long for the infinite given theism at 0.9, so quite high. Uh, he says, I wouldn't say that such desires couldn't possibly arise in an atheistic worldview, but how likely would they arise in such a world, in an atheistic world? Uh, so long as the answer to that question is less likely than in a theistic world, then the presence of these desires confirm theism. At this point the main kind of objection is going to be from the field of what's called evolutionary psychology and indeed naturalistic evolutionary psychology. For example the philosopher Eric Weilenberg suggests that the, the kind of nebulous nature of joy might be an advantage uh, an advantage might be advantageous if joy arose, if we happen to you know, have some sort of mutation in our evolutionary history that causes us to experience that, that might be advantageous. He says joy's lack of clear intentional object might have led early humans down what he calls Lewisian false paths, um, such as the pursuit of sex and power and adventure 
that did have direct fitness advantages so you know this desire for satisfaction and I don't know you know what's it for I don't really know what I'm looking for uh, leads you to pursue all sorts of things that do have fitness advantages but this account lacks explanatory power because Weilenberg only suggests that restlessness might be advantageous. He says early humans favoured with a, a chronic ill-defined restlessness of heart might have outcompeted other humans who were naturally more sedentary and complacent. Well, okay, might, but equally it might be the case that hominids affected with a chronic ill-defined restlessness of heart would be outcompeted by humans free from such existential ennui. So I don't find that particularly uh, powerful as an explanation. Uh, Weilenberg's hypothesis also lacks explanatory simplicity compared to the hypothesis that the, the direct fitness advantages of sex, power and adventure are self-sufficient. Um, Indeed, when our ancestors realised that neither sex nor power nor adventure, etc., satisfy this joy desire, wouldn't that lessen the significance of those advantageous activities in their minds, thereby constituting an evolutionary disadvantage compared to creatures lacking the joy desire? Uh, and of course, Weilenberg offers no explanation for the appearance of joy in our gene pool, as it were, only for its natural selection should it appear. Uh, Gregory Basham, in my debate with him, concedes that these possible explanations are highly conjectural. As Victor Reppert says, natural desires that are unfulfillable on Earth is precisely what you should expect from their point of view of theism. I seriously doubt that we can do this from the point of view of naturalism, even if a, a halfway decent looking evolutionary explanation of how such desires could arise were forthcoming from the naturalist. And of course that naturalistic evolutionary psychology objection presupposes uh, the soundness of naturalistic evolutionary th psychology. Um, but Stephen M. Downs, for example, says that there's a broad consensus among philosophers of science that evolutionary psychology, per se, is a deeply flawed enterprise, and an increasing number of books arguing this point have been published. Um, naturalistic evolutionary psychology, of course, presupposes the neo-Darwinian account of human evolution by random variation and natural selection, uh, an account that Lewis uh, doubted and uh, which is the subject of much current debate. Fourth way of putting the argument would be what we can call an inductive argument, uh, inductive arguments from desire. Uh, Lewis in Mere Christianity puts the argument this way, uh, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. Uh, a baby feels hunger, well there is such a thing as food. Uh, a duckling wants to swim, well uh, there is such a thing as water. 
he says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And it's that most probable explanation uh, suggests uh, an inference here from the sort of examples that he gives before mentioning the joy desire. So we could put the argument like this. Uh, one, humans have an innate existential desire for the transcendent stroke God stroke one or more states of being for which God is uh, plausibly a necessary precondition. Two, most innate uh, human desires, um, these existential desires, are such that there exists some object capable of satisfying them. Therefore, the transcendent stroke God probably exists. And it's you, you have to put that probably in there because we're making an inductive uh, argument here. Uh, even if we set aside the distinction that's often used in this argument between um, innate and non-innate desires, uh, even if we set that aside, actually it seems to me that to be a sound, again, heuristic principle, a sensible way of thinking about things, uh, to give every desire the presumption of having a fulfilment until uh, conceptual analysis or evidence shows otherwise. So again, I think the, the burden of proof should be on the sceptic here. A final way of putting this argument uh, is into a, what's called philosophers called a reductio ad absurdum, where you you, ass you assume the falsity of a principle and show that that leads to absurd consequences in order to argue for the truth of the principle. So again, in mere Christianity, Lewis says this: he says, "If I find in myself a desire which." no experience in the world can satisfy. The most plausible explanation is that I was made for another world. And he adds, if, if none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. So he's setting up here the idea that if we were to think that the desire that he's talking about has no satisfaction, then we'd also have to think that the universe we're living in is in some sense uh, a, a fraud, has um, perpetrated a sort of joke upon uh, humanity, a cosmic joke at our expense. He says a, a man may love a woman and not win her, but it would be very odd if the phenomenon called falling in love occurred in a sexless world uh, by analogy. Um, just because we desire the transcendent or you know desire forgiveness or desire cosmic justice etc etc perhaps doesn't guarantee that we would personally individually get those things but those desires would be very odd desires to occur in a world where no satisfaction for them uh, possibly uh, existed Lewis contended that naturalism inevitably generates what he called a disharmony between our hearts and nature. Um, as Geoffrey Gordon concludes, if the, if the universe lacks purpose, if there's no given inherent uh, purpose to the universe, a purpose that we discover rather than inventing for ourselves, that kind of discoverable purpose of life,
if the universe lacks purpose it says man is a, a creature imbued with passions remarkably inappropriate to the universe in which he is immersed in mere christianity lewis observed that we desire other people to conform to objective moral law and desire ourselves to be innocent before that law before arguing that this law is rooted in god and making a, a moral argument for theism but the desire to fulfill moral duty is absurd on a naturalistic worldview but fits comfortably within theism see for example george mavrode's famous 1986 paper on religion and the queerness of morality indeed everything including purpose is objectively speaking meaningless without the existence of objective value and so tying the argument from desire with the argument from meta-ethics uh, the moral argument in the final analysis shows we, we must choose between theism as a worldview and not only naturalism but nihilism as a worldview so an existential reductive argument from desire might go something like this uh, one given um, an instantiated kind okay so human beings uh, possessing innate existential desires uh, the existence of K would be absurd to the extent that it's impossible for any member of K to have those desires satisfied well two humans are an instantiated kind okay uh, with innate existential desires that are impossible or we could say very unlikely or pretty unlikely to be satisfied unless God exists uh, three therefore it follows therefore that unless God exists human existence is absurd or is probably absurd at least to a substantial extent well if we add premise four that however human existence is not absurd at least not to any substantial extent it would follow five that therefore God at least probably uh, exists now that the key uh, premise here I think is four and I would simply argue that four is uh, properly basic again it's one of those things to be uh, believed or assumed uh, in the absence of sufficient reason not to believe or assume it um, if the satisfaction of our innate existential desires requires God then the properly basic belief that life isn't absurd um, places the burden of proof on the nihilist now of course some may profess a willingness to pay the the price tag of affirming nihilism but this affirmation is not an easy one to make or to consistently sustain if you take it seriously so to pull some of these threads together for us um, before C.S. Lewis many people wrote about joy and transcendent desires and 
several thinkers gestured towards or made arguments from desire, folks like Aquinas, Pascal, Chalmers, Chesterton, Maritain, Jode. But Lewis, um, first of all, considered a, a plurality of innate desires, although he focused on joy, but he, he did widen uh, the des innate desires that one looked at. And B, he used a plurality of argumentative forms, putting the argument in different ways, in different rhetorical contexts. So he didn't just give forward a argument from desire, but various arguments from desire in that sense. And Lewis produced the 20th century's principal sustained positive engagement with the argument from desire, which has uh, inspired thinkers ever since. He's become the, the uh, classical locus of thinking about this argument. These factors secure Lewis's place as a central figure in the theistic argument from desire, uh, one who's inspired this growing high-level engagement with the argument in contemporary philosophy uh, and apologetics.